By the way, did y'all hear about the new corduroy pillows that have come out? Yeah, they're really making headlines. You got to think about it a minute. Think about it. All right. So anyways, uh, we're beginning our new study this month, as I said, or this, this quarter of Book of Mark. Uh, we just finished up a study of, of whether we could trust the Bible, how we got the Bible, and so forth. And I uh, think this is going to be a great study. It is going to be a lot of material. I'm not going to have outlines for you because it's so much material that we're going to be covering. Um, we're, going to be, we're going to be going through the first eight chapters in two quarters. Actually, I'm sorry, the first eight chapters in one quarter and the last eight chapters in the second quarter. So it's going to be a lot of stuff we're going to go over. So don't, I, it, would, it would require so much paperwork to print all that out. If you want to get these outlines that I use, you, you can go Google executable outlines if you want to write that down, executable outlines. That's where I get most of the material from. Uh, that's where the outlines come from. If you wanted to go there and print these, uh, it's all there. You can get them in a PDF format or in regular text, whatever. It's up to you. Unfortunately, it's just too much to print. I mean, today I'm probably going to be covering about four of those outlines that are on that website. So that's a lot of paperwork. Uh, I'm going to try not to go to executable outlines. I'm trying not to go too fast. If I am, what's that? Well, yeah, I think it's execute. Yeah, I think that's all one word. Dot com. You can Google it and it'll come up. You know, just put it in a Google window. Uh, I'm trying not to go too fast. If I am going too fast, just raise your hand and say you're going too fast, and we'll slow down, okay? And I don't have to cover everything each time. You know, we can push it out to the next week if we need to. You know, as we go, we'll have what I think 12 Sundays. One Sunday is going to be Harvest Weekend. I know. So we won't be having class that Sunday. There may be another Sunday in there in the quarter that we won't have. So we only have, you know, 11, 12 Sundays to cover eight chapters of Mark. So we'll do our best to get through that. Uh, I think it's going to be a great study, though. Uh, but like I said, it may be, we may go a little too fast. Under, you know, bear with me. We'll try to work through it. First of all and foremost, Mark is a gospel of the life of Jesus. Uh, we have the four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is pretty much, well, pretty much, it is the shortest gospel of the, of the four. It's one of the synoptic gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very similar in what they have to say. It is the shortest of the four gospels. And it's likely, although it's been disputed, it's likely the first one that was written. And it's often overlooked because of Matthew and Luke. Obviously, Matthew's written, you can tell by the way it's written, it was written for the, for the Jews, the Jewish Christians, Hebrews. They, a lot of stuff is written in Matthew about the Old Testament, about the practices of the, of the Jews and so forth. Luke, more, more for the, the Gentiles. Those that didn't necessarily know all the practices of the, of the Jews, of the Levites, of the, of the law of Moses, right? It's more about uh, explaining things. And Mark kind of gets involved in both of those, but it's very short. It's pretty brief about it. In fact, most likely it was written to Christians who were in Rome at the time, right? And there's going to be some things we'll show to talk about how he wrote that. Mark's gospel is an ideal introduction to the faith. Um, because of its brevity, because it pretty much just deals with Jesus and his ministry, you don't have anything about his birth, you don't have anything about the early part of his life, it's going to begin with John the Baptist and when he meets Jesus and his baptism right there. And then it goes from there through Jesus' ministry and all eventually to his uh, crucifixion. And, uh, and his resurrection. So we'll, 
We'll go through that. It's pretty brief. It's used in the mission fields. It's one of the first books translated into a new language because it is so short. In fact, if you sat down and read Mark, you can probably read it if you're not in front of the TV or if the kids are in bed. You could read it probably in about an hour, hour and a half. It's really short, and you can get through it quickly. <clears throat> well, who wrote the book of Mark? Mark is written by John Mark, who apparently was from a wealthy family. If you will, turn over to Acts chapter 12. And let's read about who he was and where he was from. Acts chapter 12. And let's look at uh, verse 12. <clears throat> Actually, let's go back to verse 11 to set this up. Acts 12, verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary. The mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept missing, insisting that it was so. And they said, it is his angel. Here we have Peter being released from prison. The Christians in Jerusalem there, those who believe are praying for Peter, apparently, in Mary's house, who is the mother of John Mark. So that kind of shows you they had some money, right? They had a house. Mary had a house. Apparently, he came from some level of wealth, right? He, uh, he's also, as we can read, not going to go read it, but in Colossians 4.10, we realize that John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. And we remember who Barnabas was. He's the Levite from Cyprus who went on missionary journeys along with Paul, right? He's one of the brethren that were in Jerusalem who came and laid his, his money, sold things that he had, and laid his money at the apostles' feet. Turn over to chapter 13, and let's just read about that a little bit. Chapter 13 in Acts there, beginning in verse 4. <clears throat> so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. This is John Mark. Now, when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, uh, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, and an, intel an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what he had been, had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now when Paul and his party set a sail from Pephas, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. All right. So here we have John Mark. He was on missionary journey with Paul. Apparently, he decided to go back for some reason. Don't know why, but he left, <clears throat> which ended up causing some problems. Turn over to Acts 15, and let's see what we can find out in Acts 15 in verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and 
see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark. Huh. So Barnabas wants to take his cousin now, who left them on the first trip. But Paul insisted that they should not take with him the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to work. Now, can you imagine Paul and Barnabas talking about this? You know, if it was your granddad, what would he have said? I got no use for the kid. Right? <laughs> he left us the first time. Why in the world would I take him this time? Martin says, well, you know, he's my cousin. You know, he, he, he's a good kid. Yeah, you know, yeah, he, he got some cold feet, but can you imagine how that went? In fact, it says in verse 39, the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Man, Paul and Barnabas button heads a little bit over this guy who Barnabas wants to take with him. And Paul says, no, I ain't taking him. Well, so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So here we have John Mark, who we understand wrote this gospel. Yet he had a period of time where he was, you know, I don't know what the issue was. Did he backslide? Was he wondering about his faith? Was he just scared? Did he just get tired, become lazy? I don't know. We don't know for sure. But apparently things changed. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and let's read something else Paul said about him. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, and let's begin in verse 9. He's talking to Timothy, and he says, be, Paul is talking to Timothy, he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, and Titus for Dal uh, Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. So get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for ministry. Apparently something had changed. Paul now says, bring Mark to me. He can be useful for me. He's heard apparently that Mark has become active. Maybe he's finally matured in his faith enough. Maybe he's got past his cold feet or his immaturity. Whatever it was, Paul now considers him a great worker in the kingdom. Just like some of us probably did and have done and may still be doing, right? How many of you, when you first became a Christian, was zealous for the Lord, right? We're so ready to do the work of the kingdom. And then you kind of fell off the cliff. Maybe not so much off the cliff, but you kind of rolled down the hill a little bit. You remember that in your life? Got something similar here with John Mark. <clears throat> well, John Mark also worked in a company, Peter. We don't have a record of that necessarily in the, word, in the scripture, but according to uh, some of the early church writers, he became an interpreter for Peter. Uh, Papias, who lived between 60 to 130 A.D., wrote a lot about the early church, chronicled the Christians, and he mentions this. In fact, Justin Martyr, who wrote, lived around 150 A.D. in that area, is, uh, wrote that uh, Mark wrote the gospel from Peter's memoirs, that he may not have necessarily been there all the time with Jesus, as the apostles were, but he wrote 
from what Peter had told him. In fact, there are those who will even tell you this is really the gospel of Peter. Now, I'm not going to go that far. There's just, that's just speculation, really. We know that from the early church writers. These men are not considered to be inspired of the, of the Spirit, but that's something that they said. That's something that we have historically. Uh, John Mark uh, supposedly went to Alexandria in Egypt and died around 64 AD. So the book was probably written in the early 60s to late 50s AD. Uh, don't know for sure, probably dates around 57 to 59 AD. Again, it was one of the, it's considered to be perhaps the first book written, written to Gentiles perhaps in Rome. Uh, one of the reasons we would consider that is if you turn over to Mark chapter 7, we'll read something about the way he's writing. Seven and three, uh, verse 3, he says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Now, he's explaining a custom of the Jews. If this was strictly written for the Jews probably wouldn't happen to go into that detail, right? So that's one of the examples that we have that says this is probably written to Gentiles, perhaps those Christian Gentiles that are in Rome. Uh, there's also a Mark 6. Well, actually, let's just go over there and read it. Mark 6, around verse uh, 48. Talks about, actually, go to verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to their side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone in the land. And then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. What's the fourth watch of the night? That's a Roman term, meaning that was the fourth period of time, probably between 3 and 6 a.m., when the Roman guards would have switched to a new guard for that period of the, of the time to keep watch. So you have a Roman accounting of time. So you kind of can see that's how we're getting this idea that this was perhaps written to Christians in Rome. Another interesting point. Turn over to chapter 15, chapter 15 there. And uh, let's read something else that's unique to Mark. Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. This is when Jesus is uh, headed to Calvary. He says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. This is an interesting account of Simon. We have that in the other Gospels. But this is the only place that's mentioned about his sons, Alexander and Rufus. Why do you think Mark does that? Why does he mention these guys? Well, perhaps they were well known. Perhaps these guys... We're living in Jerusalem, and Simon had come for the Passover. Perhaps this is a time where people could go to these guys and say, Hey, did this guy really do this? Did this really happen? So you have eyewitnesses there. Mark's giving that out. and saying, These are guys you can go to. Don't just believe what I'm telling you. Go talk to these guys. He'll tell you about their dad who carried Jesus' cross. Interesting, right? We don't think about those things when we're just reading this either, do we? Interesting concept. 
There are very few Old Testament quotations. The focus is on Jesus as a servant. In fact, he emphasizes Jesus' deeds more than his words. We only have uh, four of the parables of Mark. Luke has most of the parables. We have 19 miracles, things that he did. Deeds of one who did not come to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, 45. Mark wants us to see who Jesus was, not so much what he said as much as we read of Matthew, Luke, and John, but his deeds, what he did, the things that he did. Because remember, these signs and wonders are what's going to help corroborate who he is, right? Yeah, he says he's the son of man, he's the son of God, but how do we know that for sure? And that's what Mark is going to focus on, his servant servitude. Some special characteristics I mentioned, this is an early gospel, probably the first written, all but 31 verses are quoted in the other gospels, all but 31 verses out of Mark. Some will even say that Matthew and Luke base their gospels on Mark. Now, I've, I've heard that before. I'm not sure that's right, but some would say they took that from what Mark wrote and expanded on it. Matthew obviously would have been there. Luke traveled with the apostles. He was not an apostle. He would travel with Paul and the missionary journeys and so forth. He would have perhaps seen Jesus as possible, but he also would have heard about Jesus from the other apostles that he traveled with. So we have that. Uh, it's a very concise gospel, very um, fast-paced. We see with 40 times you, hear, you read the word straightway or immediately, right? You see that a lot. And, and if you think about that, what, what would that be like? Say I'm sitting there giving my account of something I saw to a policeman. How would I, how would I say it? I, of course, I'd probably be pretty nervous about it, and I'd be going pretty fast, right? And I'd be saying, well, this happened, this happened. And then, and then straight away we went over here and did this, and then immediately he came, you know, and shot me or something. You know, it's kind of like that. It's like he's giving an eyewitness account of what's going on, you know? Interesting. It's very evangelistic. It starts out by saying the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Interesting concept, right? Let's go over there and start reading Mark chapter 1. Verse 1, Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Starts right off. Says this is the gospel. This is about Jesus. This is who we're going to hear about. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to, went out to him. And they were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair. John, John, and now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right. Mark gets right into it. Beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he first starts talking about who? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist who is fulfilling prophecy here that was foretold by Old Testament prophets who was very successful in his preaching, whose preaching or really life was cut short because of imprisonment. Remember, Herod had him thrown in jail. Salome asked for the head of John the Baptist, presented it, right? 
Interesting concepts here. We have a fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi. In fact, let's go look at that. Malachi chapter 3. Mark, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Turn over to chapter 4 of Malachi, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. All right. All four gospels preface Jesus' ministry with John the Baptist's ministry. But Mark is the only one that does it at the very beginning. In other words, Mark's saying this is where it all starts. This is where it all begins, just like the prophets foretold. He was coming to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. Interesting how Malachi mentions Elijah the prophet in verse, chapter 4 there. You see, the Jews understood Elijah was going to return. They thought that the real Elijah, the, the prophet, the great prophet Elijah, was coming back because of those prophecies. They did not understand that it was referring to John the Baptist. Turn over to Matthew chapter 17, and let's read something there. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 17, beginning of verse 10. <clears throat> and his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first, and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So here we have the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. And we had Jesus explaining it to the disciples that he's talking about John the Baptist. That's who this Elijah was that was to come before the great Messiah. Well, what did John do? John's purpose was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He came baptizing in the wilderness. We can read that in Matthew 3, the wilderness of Judea and in the region of Jordan River. John 1, 28, he was in Bethabara or Bethany, which is on the east side of the Jordan. John 3, 23, he's later there in Anon of Salim, west side of the Jordan where there was much water. Read about that. What did he preach? Well, Mark 1, 4 says he preached a baptism of repentance for remission of sins. Hmm. Second Corinthians, we can read about how that's prompted by godly sorrow and followed by a zealous desire to do right. In other words, it was sincere. Some people might have said, well, John the Baptist's baptism wasn't anything. No. These people were going to John and being baptized for forgiveness of their sins. It was very real to them, very sincere thing. They considered to be cleansed when they were baptized by John. So Hebrews 9 says, and let's go over there and read that real quick. Hebrews 9, 
chapter 9. And verse 15. Remember Hebrews was talking about Jesus Christ, the high priest, the mediator, the one and only sacrifice that we needed. In verse 9, chapter 9, verse 15, he says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the re- now notice what this, ver- this part of the verse. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What's the Hebrew writer saying that? He's telling them. Those who died under the Old Testament are having their sins covered by Jesus Christ. Not by bulls or goats, which couldn't do it, but by the great sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. It's pointing to that, right? The sins might be forgiven. John's baptism is a baptism remission of sins, but in essence, he's pointing to Jesus Christ. Was he successful? Well, Mark says all of Judea came out to see him. Wow. And he didn't say some. He didn't say just the poor. Didn't say just the folks who had the money or the folks who were interested. All, all of Judea came to see him. They were hearing about him. They wanted to hear what he preached. And they went out there in the desert to hear about him. Interesting point is made about his lifestyle. He was clothed in camel's hair and had a leather belt. He had a diet of locusts and honey. We don't see that here, but we do in other Gospels. And he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. A couple of interesting things I want to see. If you will, turn over to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter uh, 1. If I can get over there. Second Kings chapter one. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and let's begin uh, verse five. Second Kings one and verse five. And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you come back? So they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go return to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, It is because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal Zebub, Zebub, the God of Ikron. Therefore you shall not come down from bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then he said to him, them, what kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? Notice this verse. So they answered him, a hairy man, wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. Hmm. What did we just read about John the Baptist? He was a hairy man. Wearing camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. Just like Elijah the prophet. Interesting, huh? Learn over Luke chapter 1. Read something quickly from there. Verse 17. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Luke writes about it too. John the Baptist was the Elijah who was prophesied to come and basically he was living just like him. He's out there in the wilderness making the way for the Lord. 
He even goes on to talk about who Jesus is, the one who is mightier than he, whose sandals wrap he is unworthy to even stoop down and loose. And yet, he's there preaching a baptism of repentance of, and remission of sins. He also refers to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which was fulfilled at the Pentecost, right? We know about that. John's Baptist spoke of greater things to come. John's, um, John's ministry spoke of that greater things to come. A couple things for that. <laughs> Think about what I just said there. These people had to go out into the wilderness to hear, hear of him. This is all of Judea did that. Would you have received John's message? Would you have driven? I don't know. What if, what if you heard there was a guy out west in Arizona preaching about the coming of the Lord? Would you be willing to go hear him? What about a guy who wore camel's hair and had hair all over his body? Ate locusts and wild honey. What would you say about somebody like that? <laughs> Dude's crazy. That's just a wild, crazy man. I don't want to hear what he has to say. Interesting concept. Something to think about, right? Let's go back to Mark 1. We know John's preaching about the one to come. And in verse 9, we start to read about that. It says, it came to pass in those days, Mark, 1, verse, chapter, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 9, came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth, Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan, and immediately coming up from the water... He saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Interesting, we have Jesus now meeting John in the wilderness. Jesus from Nazareth, that's probably a hundred mile trip from there down to where John was baptizing. Jesus went all the way down there. Why did he do it? What was the purpose of this? This is the height of John's ministry, right? All of Judea is coming to see him. Jesus comes and gets baptized by him. At this point, John knows who he is. Why was he baptized? Does this baptism actually reveal a purpose for our baptism? As I said, he came from Nazareth. He's baptized by John there in Bethany. By the way, we know he was immersed because what's it say? Immediately coming up from the water. He went down into the water. Baptized by John, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And what else do we get? The Father bears witness from heaven. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. All right, a couple of questions with this. Why was it done? And does this have anything to do with our baptism? Well, I'm not going to go read it, but in Matthew 3, Jesus said it was done to fulfill all righteousness. We don't get that here in Mark. But it was God's will for him to be baptized by John. Turn over to Luke chapter 7. Let's read something about that. Luke chapter 7 and verse 29 <clears throat> And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. 
But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You see, Jesus is doing the will of his Father. Those who didn't believe didn't want anything to do with it. John didn't want anything to do with John to begin with, and ultimately Christ. It also served to point out to Israel who he was. John didn't know he was. He knew he was coming. And the way he knew who he was going to be was because the Spirit was going to descend upon him. He was told that. You can read about that in John 1. John had been told the Spirit was coming upon him, and that would be a sign. And he was baptized to do God's will and publicly identify himself to Israel. Now, you may hear today, if you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in the essentiality of baptism, that Jesus' baptism had nothing to do with our baptism because it wasn't for forgiveness of sin, right? In fact, he was without sin. He didn't need to be baptized for remission of sin. He was baptized to fulfill our righteousness. In fact, you might hear that baptism had nothing to do with forgiveness or baptism was given a public, it's just a public profession of faith or that baptism publicly identifies one uh, as a follower of Christ. But really, there is nothing to compare his baptism to ours. It's not the same. This was done to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill righteousness. Our, our baptism is for remission of sin, Acts 2, 38. Ours is a union with Christ, Romans 6. We're buried with him in baptism, united with him in his, in his burial and resurrection, right? Ours is administered in relative privacy. You see, Jesus is doing this when all to see. So Israel knows he is the one. So John the Baptist knows he is the one. When we get baptized, yeah, maybe on a Sunday morning, there's quite a few people here. But we have a lot of folks who get baptized when nobody's here. Maybe some of you have been in that situation. How about in Acts 8 when we read about the Ethiopian eunuch? You remember? The Spirit carried Philip away. He's reading in his chariot on the way back to Ethiopia. Out in the desert. Well, except they found some water. And he was baptized right then. Right there. Probably weren't too many folks around to see that. In fact, the only way we would know about the Ethiopian eunuch is because Luke wrote about him. It's not something that's done publicly. So when someone refers or tries to use Jesus' baptism to say it's not relevant because he was uh, without sin, it really is not relevant because it had nothing to do with our baptism. It's not the same thing. It was done for a totally different purpose. <clears throat> Keep that in mind. Even I, I've, I've even heard people say, well, we should be baptized just because Jesus did it. And, and I guess that's, there's some truth to that. But remember, Jesus' baptism was not for remission of sins. He was without sin. Uh, don't want to confuse you too much on that, but I want you to have that in the back of your mind in case somebody ever says that to you. It certainly bears testimony as to who Jesus was, right? Um, turn over to Matthew chapter 12 and read a little. Let's read a little more about that. Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> Verse uh, 25. 
But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, the Spirit ascended upon him, gave testimony that he was the one, the Son, the one who casts out demons by the Spirit. Matthew 17. Turn over there real quick. Verse 5, and while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. This is the transfiguration of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, right? At his baptism, at the transfiguration, you hear the Father bearing witness as to who he is. So, importance of this baptism, he's identified publicly, and God and the Spirit, the Father and the Spirit, bear witness as to who he is. Well, interesting points, interesting things, and then what happens? Let's go back to Mark 1. We're running out of time here, but let's go quickly. Mark 1, verse 12, immediately, notice those words again, Mark keeps using, immediately, straightway, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. Here's the first temptations, right, from Satan. Immediately after his baptism, when his ministry is beginning, he is tempted. He fasts for 40 days in the wilderness. Mark even mentions that there's wild beasts there. Don't have that in the other Gospels. And it's the beginning of his ministry, right before, well, right before he's going to start, right? And it reminds us that Jesus can understand our temptation. The Hebrew writer talks about this in chapter 2 and 4. Don't have time to go read it. But for chapter 4, he talks about how he's sympathetic and provides mercy and grace to those who are tempted because he was tempted before us. Interesting thing about that transfiguration, and I want to turn over here real quickly, Exodus 34. You don't have to go over there if you don't want, but Exodus 34, verse 28. Actually, verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Ah, there's Moses fasting for 40 days and 40 nights when he was writing down the Ten Commandments. Turn over to 1 Kings real quickly, chapter 19. Verse, uh, verse 5, then as he lay and slept under a broom, a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again, and the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and arise, said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went to a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, where the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Interesting. We have Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days and fasting when he's tempted. 
just like Moses did when he did the commandments and just like Elijah did when he was told to preach. You see, that transfiguration thing when Moses and Elijah are there, there's something to that. You got Moses representing the law. You got Elijah representing the prophets. All culminated in one man, one God, Jesus Christ. You read that. First commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second commandment is the same as the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. For on these hang all the law and the prophets. Isn't it cool when you can see stuff in the Old Testament that point to Jesus like that? Makes sense, doesn't it? The climax here. Mark doesn't really get into the record of the temptation of, of Satan like the other Gospels do. We know there were at least three temptations, right? Satan uh, tempted Jesus about the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, right? And at the end, and each time Jesus did what? To rebuke Satan. Remember? It is written. Yeah. Use scripture, right? Use scripture to rebuke Satan. At the end of the temptation, Mark mentions the angels ministered to him. We don't know how. Maybe they nourished him. After all, he hadn't eaten in 40 days. And this would not be the last time that he is tempted by Satan. But keep in mind, this Satan went after him for a season, left him, tried again, realized he couldn't conquer him. And in Revelation 12, we have the example that says he's now directed toward, his, toward the Lord's disciples. Who is that? Us. We have similar temptations, right? Do we have lust of the flesh? Oh, yeah. Ever more than ever. Do we have lust of the eyes, materialism, wanting this and that? Yeah. Do we still have that pride of life, that arrogance that we can do everything on our own? Oh, yeah. Ephesians 6, the word of God is like our sword, right? And I know that seems cliche, but it's very true. When you're tempted, maybe the first thing you need to do is get in the Word. Ever thought about that? If you're struggling with something, maybe you need to start just, if you don't have a scripture with you, start quoting those memory verses that you learned when you were six. Right? That's what Jesus did. And what did Satan do? He left him. When we are tempted, we know we have a mediator who went through the same thing. And yes, he was tempted. He was in the flesh, just like us. One more point I'll make there. We talked about this when we studied angels. Angels minister to him just like those who are obtaining salvation. When we are tempted, when we are troubled, what follows that? Consolation. In this life, when we go through things, usually when we come through it, we're better for it and we get a little help, right? Not necessarily from angels that we know of, but also Luke talks about those uh, Lazarus being carried after he dies. I believe that's very true. Angels will be carrying us to heaven. Copying us. All right. Uh, that's all the time we have. Sorry that we ran over a little bit. We're probably